Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. You're about to hear an archived edition from our series we called Voices of the Holy Land that we did between 2000 and 2003. This one is from 2002. We talked to people who lived in Palestine, the West Bank, in Gaza, and in Israel. We talked to them about their lives, what they did, what they believed in, what they lived, how they pursued their daily existence. And on this 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War, the 50th anniversary of the occupation, begins our series of conversations about that, this one dipping into our archives. You're going to hear a conversation we had with a Palestinian woman who lived in the United States for 15 years, received four degrees from the University of Michigan, an Israeli army commander who refused to serve in the West Bank, and a Palestinian professor. Remember, this is a Steiner Show archive, so please send me your thoughts when you hear what you think to talk at steinershow.org. I hope you enjoy this very special segment from our archives. Hello, I'm Mark Steiner. Welcome to another installment in our ongoing special interview series, Voices of the Holy Land. Today, we'll first hear from Dr. Nuha Kori. Nuha Kori lived in the United States for 15 years, received four degrees from the University of Michigan, and returned to the Middle East voluntarily after the signing of the Oslo Accord. She represents thousands of Palestinians who studied or worked abroad and returned to the Palestinian territories at the prospect of peace. Remember, this is a pre-recorded program, so we can't take your calls. Well, after the Oslo, really, after the Oslo agreement, there was so much hope among uh, the young, educated people, especially those who were educated in the West and who have been away for a while. And uh, there was this hope that, you know, we are coming back, we are coming back home, we are building a state, um, a state that is uh, a democracy where our uh, knowledge, you know, that we brought with us will be, will serve and help our people, uh, where the economy will uh, be revived, you know, where our educational system will be uplifted, where, you know, all the hopes for a new uh, world for us as far as we Palestinians are concerned. I, I think that's what most people returned to do. Uh, there was this, you know, um, uh, huge um, influx of people, not only from the, uh, from, the, from the Americas and from Europe, but also from uh, some of the Gulf countries who came with education and with money to help rebuild uh, uh, Palestine, because we all, you know, saw that there is a possibility for a state. Actually, we did not think otherwise. We, we believed in the Oslo peace process, and we believed that, you know, at the end of this whole process, there will be a state, and we will be part, you know, of building that state. So that I was one of those people who returned with, with all of these hopes and all of, these, uh, uh, all of this determination to do something for, for my country. And so this, this, this throng of expatriate uh, intellectuals and business people who returned mm-hmm. to the West Bank yes. um, and have remained there, for, I guess, for the most part? For the most part, uh, the business people, not too many of them returned. Uh, not, to, not too many of them stayed. Many of the business people uh, have upped and left. Uh, many of the Arab Americans actually also have left, uh, especially within the last 20 months since the situation has really deteriorated. Many of them uh, brought their families back, and, you know, the situation has not been very safe for uh, raising families. For businesses, most of the businesses have uh, really uh, uh, done very badly. I mean, the economy is, uh, is terrible. 
So many of those who were motivated by business uh, and out of a business sense, they, they left. But you remained, and you, remain, and, you, and you're determined to stay. Yes. I mean, I, uh, sometimes I, I feel down, but I'm, I never regret this decision. Uh, it was the right decision at the right time for me, and I still believe that I still have a role to fulfill in this country. If all of us leave, then, you know, um, this, this place needs, needs its people, and uh, I'm one of those people who have been committed to return. And, you know, it's, I, I understood that it's not going to be so easy. I thought it was going to be a little bit easier than this, but I also understood that it's going to be difficult. It's not as easy as living in America. Um, uh, I always uh, used to say, you know, taking a shower here is a, a political issue because, you know, there is not much water and you have to decide <laughs> whether you stay five minutes under the shower or half an hour as I did in America. But now it's a political issue. So life is difficult in all aspects. And this is part of the, uh, you, ta- you come back, you accept this and you have to deal with it. And, you know, as Palestinian people, we have been very good at adapting uh, at the situation, uh, uh, for this uh, kind of situation. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm staying. I'm not thinking of uh, returning to America, only just to visit. Well, let me ask I consider you... it as uh, my second home also. Uh, to ask you some questions about what's going on now from a number of perspectives. Uh, the, the, the Israeli soldiers have left mm. Bethlehem left... and the Church of the Nativity. They left the... The inside of the city and the Nativity Church, but they are still surrounding the city. So um, there are checkpoints, there are still uh, tanks, and still, I mean, you know, three nights ago, a tank, just two tanks actually, just uh, rolled down, you know, uh, Manger Street, and just for a, they were cruising, I guess, uh, back and forth, and uh, they are still surrounding us. So the 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 danger of coming back uh, is still on the minds of uh, the people because they are still there. They are surrounding us. They are not inside of the city of Bethlehem, but they are on the outskirts of Bethlehem. I, I want to ask you some questions directly re- related to life in the Palestinian side of yes. this. Sure. Um, and a lot in the last weeks have been, has been made of, of um, democratic forces in the Palestinian community Mm-hmm. pushing the Palestinian Authority to create a more democratic process. Yes. yes. And, and I'm curious about that. I mean, you both as, a, as an intellectual, as a woman who spent years in America, mm-hmm. um, who have your own ideas about what a democratic state should be, mm-hmm. and I, I want you to give us your sense of what a future Palestinian state would be mm-hmm. and the real possibilities of, being, of it being democratic. Uh, um, I think, I, I hope, that we will have a state of law that respects law, that has um, uh, laws not only on books but on practice, that has a, a good court system, uh, that has a, um, a transparent uh, system uh, that will have, you know, a representation of the ma- uh, majority uh, and keeping the rights of the minority as well, uh, guaranteeing rights for women and children, uh, human rights, uh, uh, political prisoners' rights, because it's an issue in our country, um, economic rights, all of the things that the first world enjoys. 
Um, I know what it is like to uh, vote. We, we have voting here, but voting is not enough. You know, we voted people in. But we also need a system of checks and balances that, will, uh, that is working, that is um, operating. And also we need also to educate uh, our people on the principle of democracy because it, it should not come from up down. It has to come uh, uh, as a process from down up because that's how we can force our uh, authority to become more democratic if we really understand what the meaning of democracy means. And this comes with education. It comes with practice. It comes within the family. It comes in schools, all of that. So it's not only just from up down. I don't believe that uh, if the authority wants to be democratic, I mean, nobody gives uh, democracy away. It's a something that nations work for, they strive for, uh, and it's a struggle. It's an unending process. Well, how, how strong and how realistic and how powerful are those democratic forces within Palestine itself, within the West Bank and Gaza? I mean, you know that historically most revolutionary movements take over. Democracy is not usually the system yes. that's established yes. for any number of reasons. Yes. And, and um, so you have two sets of forces, those people who lived their lives in the West Bank and those who came back. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm talking about Yasser Arafat. Yes. So what is, do you, how honestly can you portray the strength of those who are democratic forces among the Palestinian movement? Um, I think we need help from the outside. I don't think at this moment uh, we... Um, uh, it will take a long time. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, if we look around us, uh, the countries surrounding us, it, it's taking them a long time. I, I want to take the example of Jordan. I don't want to take the example of uh, Israel because okay. it's, it's not to be compared with. Um, it's taking a long time for democratization. And there are internal uh, problems and there are external forces that are keeping, you know, uh, democratization process from uh, reaching uh, where it is supposed to be. Now, if uh, there is an interest from Israel and from the United States to bring about a real democratic uh, uh, system, I think this will happen. Now, we are still an occupied people. Uh, I know, for example, that uh, America brought a democrat democratization to Japan by forcing a, a, a constitution on the Japanese people after 1945, which helped them to democratize at a faster pace. Uh, I don't want them to force us to do uh, such a thing, but they can be of a helping, uh, they can lend us a helping hand in uh, how we do, uh, how we uh, democratize at a faster pace, but not out of a concern for uh, everybody except for the Palestinian people, because in the end it will backfire. The interest of the Palestinian people should be taken into consideration, and the democratization should be because the Palestinian people need that democra this democratization. Um, it will take a long time. I don't see that it will come in a year or two. It will take maybe a generation, because as I said, it's a process that has to be learned. It cannot be imposed from above. Uh, and it needs helping hands. Now, the helping hand could be in a positive manner or it could be in a negative manner, uh, making it something that is palatable to the people or not too palatable to the people. Could, could, um, can, can a, could the Palestinian people survive a generation without a strong democracy if they have a state? Uh, the Palestinian people have survived centuries. Uh, I hope that they do not have to survive uh, for longer time without, without democracy because we really have suffered. 
uh, occupation. We have suffered being a nation of refugees. We have suffered a number of occupations, not only Israeli occupations. Occupation. We have suffered the Jordanian occupation. We have suffered British occupation. We have suffered Turkish Ottoman occupation. So we, our history is a history of occupa- occupation and tyranny and uh, and all of the things that no nation should accept for nobody. So I'm hoping that we do not have to uh, survive another generation being under uh, um, uh, free, unfree, uh, you know, give us freedom in terms of just telling us, okay, you are a a free nation, but at the same time we are uh, restricting your your, uh, freedoms because, you know, uh, you're like other uh, Middle Eastern countries. You, you know, you still don't understand democracy. I hope this doesn't happen to us. But, I, but as a people, we will survive because we are here. We will continue. And we, I'm, I'm sure we will continue working for a better life. And a better life cannot come without a democratic process. I believe that because I know what democracy brings to people. I understand the benefits of democracy. Well, do you think um, that, that – I'm, I'm interrupting, but I just in the interest of time. Do you think – that uh, that uh, that uh, that a democratic Palestine mm-hmm. would then also become a threat to other Arab nations because it is a democracy. I think all of the Arab states uh, are on the path of no return. You know, I think all of the Arab states are; they have to become at one point or another. They have to democratize because people, you know, education brings new ideas. And, you know, uh, the idea of democracy is not only in the West. It has somehow been transferred to uh, third world countries. And all third world countries now are seeking the same things that people in the first world are seeking. So if the Arab countries do not democratize, there is a threat to them, not from the Palestinian uh, people themselves, but also from their own people. You know, I, I see that there is a movement now among the Arab people in general to ask for things that they never used to ask for. They, start, they are starting to ask for uh, um, uh, human rights. They are starting to ask for all of the things that uh, people in the first world are asking for. And uh, maybe as a Palestinian people, because we have gone through uh, revolution, occupation, we might, I hope, uh, be democratized, you know, at a very fast pace. But I, you know, I, I, I hope we are not a threat. I hope we are a threat in a positive way and not in a negative way. But I, I don't see uh, democracy being a threat. I see it rather than uh, I see it as a very positive thing for all the Arab people. Now it might be a threat to the uh, leaders, but that's okay. I'm Mark Steiner. Welcome back to our ongoing special interview series, Voices of the Holy Land. Guy Grossman was born in Ranana, near Tel Aviv, in 1972. 
Both of his parents made Aliyah, emigrated to Israel in the early 1960s from England and Australia. And he grew up in a very Zionist environment. Guy started military service in late 1990. He joined a highly selective paratrooper unit specializing in anti-tank combat. He spent 18 months in the occupied territories during the First Intifada and three months in Lebanon. He has since decided to refuse to participate in the Israeli military when it serves in the West Bank. Guy Grossman, t- tell me first a bit about yourself. You, you were born in Israel? I was born in Israel in a very Zionistic home. My two parents uh, immigrated to Israel. My mom's from Australia and my, ma- my father comes from England. I uh, was raised in a very, very Zionistic home. My parents taught me that Israel is the only true home for the Jews. And, uh, but I was also raised on universal codes of morality, justice, and fairness. Very, very Zionistic home. For me, it was obvious when I was 18 that I would join an elite uh, unit in the army. Um, where I come from, Ranana, it was um, kind of um, known or accepted that if you join an elite unit, that shows your proofs your loyalty and your love to the country. And uh, let me, uh, you said you joined at 18. How old are you now? I'm now 29. 29. And you're an officer in the reserves? I'm an officer in the reserves, too. I served four years in the military between 1990 and 1994. And since then, uh, when I was released from my uh, obligatory service, I uh, uh, joined the Israeli reserve uh, military, and I do between three to six weeks every year as a reserve officer. And I, 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 I like to just jump right to the chase here and, and, and talk about what happened to the, to, um, in your consciousness in the mind of an Israeli officer of an elite paratroop unit who, as a reservist, decided not to serve in the West Bank and Gaza. Very difficult to articulate in a few minutes. Uh, we'll give you more than a few minutes. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> a, a journey, which I think uh, is one of the most difficult journeys. Uh, I I took. Uh, uh, I mean, it's uh, it's been many years of uh, of uh, audio soul searching. To I think it's also even uh, I would say a shift of an identity, identity of a uh, officer in the Israeli military, and uh, now um, I am a refuser. Uh, it takes a lot, a lot, a lot of, uh, uh, I would say, soul-searching, and it's not an easy decision. So to, to articulate it in a few minutes would be very difficult. But I think um, to become a refuser is to overcome a few myths which and the core of the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. I'm talking about Israeli myth. One myth that I had to overcome is that our presence in the occupied territory is necessary for um, securing our lives in Tel Aviv, Haifa, and Jerusalem. This I know for sure today is a myth. We don't need to be there to secure our homes in Tel Aviv, Haifa, and Jerusalem. Actually, the more or the longer we stay there, we're endangering the life of our people in Tel Aviv, Haifa, and Jerusalem. Uh, this is one of the myths that I had to overcome. Another myth is, uh, or another understanding that I, I, 
I got is that our presence there is endangering the long-term safety of Israel. The long-term safety of Israel is is related to the international support Israel gets, and the longer we're staying there, the more we suppress the people there. We're losing our moral grounds and international support. And another understanding that I had to understand is that a situation with three and a half million people live without human rights, basic human rights, without the right to vote, without the freedom of speech, and without the freedom of movement is not an option for Israel. I mean, the continuation of the occupation is not an option for Israel because it's immoral and because it's unjust. And it took me time to understand that it's wrong, not so much, and we have to end it, not so much because of the Palestinians, more, I would say, even regardless of the Palestinians. It's just not an option for Israel. And I'm speaking, or my perspective is the perspective of a Zionist. Another thing many people are forgetting, and I think it's very important to remind, is that the original Zionism got to an decision to have a Jewish state, the state of Israel, but on part of the land, because we knew that if we'll take control of all of the land, Israel could not be Jewish. There's three and a half million Palestinians living in the occupied territory. The continuation of the occupation means that Israel is losing its democratic nature, because Israel has decided not to annex the territories. That means there's three and a half million people that are living under military law with no rights. The meaning is there's a Jewish state which slowly, slowly is becoming more and more and more undemocratic. And um, people need to see the um, shutting up of uh, different voices now in Israel, uh, how the, the mechanism that is happening in Israel to understand that you cannot be undemocratic in Kalkili and Janin and continue to be democratic in Tel Aviv. And uh, this is a perspective many people are forgetting. You still, you still believe that Israel is the true home for the Jews? I, 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 am, I mean, my perspective is a, a very Zionistic perspective. I hope that someday in the future uh, Israel could be the... Um, state of all its citizens, and not just uh, the state of the Jews. But I think uh, today, still, and I think the wave of anti-Semitism in Europe lately just proved it once again, there still has to be one place on this planet which is the home for the Jews. I uh, don't think we have reached the historic stage of abandoning the Zionistic notion yet. As a young, as a youth, when you were growing up and uh, with your parents, did you start your life and your ideological thinking from what people in America might call the left, or did you not and just came to these conclusions about your role as a soldier independent of that? No, no, I, I, I got to a left, you can say, understanding in the early age, I think, I started going to Peace Now demonstration when I was about 15, 16. As a soldier, I voted for Meretz, for the left party Meretz. Yet I continued to perpetuate the occupation with my own body. And I think I'm representing a vast majority of the left that lives in an unsolved paradox, which means I go and vote for the left, I go to left demonstration and rallies, and yet 
with my own body and in the face of my life and my sanity, I perpetuate the occupation. I think only when I understood that paradox and that there's a way of breaking this paradox, I got to a conclusion of refusing. Um, there's no history of civil disobedience in Israel. I mean, when Americans hear of civil disobedience, they can relate to the black movement in the 50s, 60s in the, in the South, Martin Luther King. They can relate maybe to the Vietnam veterans who opposed the Vietnam War. But in Israel, there's no history of civil disobedience. That's why it was not an option to refuse until we came out openly with our letter of refusal. I mean, there were, just for historical um, um, pinpointing the subject, there were in the past uh, personal refusal of soldiers, but it never came to reach a, a, a movement, an open movement that is telling the people, you can refuse. In a democratic state, you have the right not to do things that contradict your most inner beliefs, your most cherished values. You have not just the right to refuse, you have the duty to refuse in a democratic state. We have no history of that. That's what made it so difficult. But I come from a left background, and it took me many, many years to break this uh, link of uh, caring for your country means you have to serve and die for it. Also, um, when you know that the war is unjust, it's the war of the settlements. What is the reaction of people around you who are your friends, who you grew up with? What's the reaction of the men who served under you and with you now that you've become a refusenik and refuse to serve in the West Bank or Gaza? Um, this was, I think, uh, the most difficult part of my uh, refusal. I had to overcome many things uh, and understanding that, uh, as I said before, a few myths, I had to overcome the fear that if I won't be there, maybe a different officer, which is less tentative, will be there. I had to overcome uh, many, many, many uh, steps b before I came to refusing. But the most difficult step was facing my comrades. And, uh, and there's quite a few that are not speaking to me today that uh, think I am a traitor. And uh, I was thrown out of my unit that I've been serving there for nine, ten years. And uh, it's friends that I fought back to back with. And this is definitely one of the most difficult things that uh, there's a price to being a refuser in such a militaristic state like Israel. But it's a price that I'm willing to pay. I am understanding that I'm serving my country in a different way. Were you sent to prison? I was not sent to prison because I never had to, I was never called up and have to refuse because after I signed the letter, I was thrown out of my unit. My commanders told me that I'm not worthy of uh, commanding soldiers anymore and they threw me out of my unit. So my military status now is unclear. What do you think separates you from, let's say, there was an article in the New York Times on Sunday, and I'm sorry, but I've forgotten the name of the 
commander, but he's a leader of Hashum HaChatzer from a kibbutz. Uh, he also leads an elite unit of men in the West Bank. And he has said many, and he is going through his own throes of consciousness and battling his own uh, world about what he should do. Yet he serves in the, in the West Bank and Gaza, and I'm sure there are many men like that and women like that. Um, and, and what separates you from them? Where is the line that I, separates I them? I'm sorry, I didn't understand exactly what he's saying. He is, it was North New York Times about a man who is a leader of Hashem HaChatzer. Okay. He was on a kibbutz. Um, and he is also serving as, uh, in Bethlehem, he is a commander of an elite paratroop unit. Okay. Uh, I think he's 38 years old, if I remember right from the article. And he's going through his own kind of mental anguish over what to do, but he's serving um, because he thinks he should and has to, even though he disagrees with the policy. And I, and I guess what I'm asking you, with two men whose politics may be very similar, where is the line of difference here? The line is very clear, that I have decided, and we are currently 460 people that joined me in saying that we want to continue, or we understand the necessary of continue serving in the military army. We want to continue help guard the country, but we're not willing to do it beyond the 67 border, because we understand that beyond the 67 border, we're not fighting a survival war, we're fighting a war of the settlements. We're fighting a war that perpetuates an unjust project of settlement that was an historical mistake, a decision that will, uh, that is not helping us reach a peace agreement, and we drew a very clear line. We said we're not serving there. So the difference is, is very clear. We just decided to draw a line between when it's democratic to serve and when it is undemocratic. And um, I think what you are, the, the, the person that you related before, you asked about him before, is exactly in the situation where I was maybe a year ago, two years ago, understanding the futility of the occupation, understanding its immorality, understanding that it's endangering Israel, yet not willing to take a further step. Uh, and I, as I told you, you need to go through crucial steps that you have to overcome, especially the camaraderie of your friends, maybe uh, understanding better the essence of democracy. And uh, I think the guy just didn't overcome these crucial steps. Guy Grossman, let me ask this one last question. I, if you had the ear of all the Israeli people politically right now, what would you say to your own country that is the response you think they should have to the suicide bombs and to the issues facing Israelis and Palestinians? Uh, what would you say the Israeli government and the Israeli people's society's response should be? Okay. First of all, of course, that we condemn Terror, terror is not an excuse. I mean, there's nothing that can justify terror. What I would tell my people and my government that they're confusing between two wars. One war is the just war of the survival of Israel to fight terrorism, and I think we can do that best from the 67 borders. We will have our moral grounds of, uh, of, the, of, of 
guarding our country and the international support. The other war is the unjust war, the war of the settlements. And our politicians are taking advantage of these two wars. People, people are, uh, these two wars overlap each other, and people don't understand the difference between these two wars, especially because they live in fear. I would try to explain to people that you can fight terror, and you should fight terror, but that has nothing to do with the continuation of the occupation. This has to stop. You've been listening to the voice of Guy Grossman. When we come back, we'll hear from Dr. Ali Jarbawi. Hello, I'm Mark Steiner. Welcome back to our ongoing special interview series, Voices of the Holy Land. Dr. Ali Jarbawi is the director of the Ibrahim Abu Lugod Institute for International Relations at Birzeit University and a professor of political science. He was also an eyewitness trapped in Jenin near the refugee camp during the recent Israeli siege of that West Bank town. I'd like to... Um, talk first about a quote that was in the paper the other day that you made when you said that there is no escaping from reform, that Arafat has two choices. He can succumb to outside pressure and be forced to do it their way, or he can do it the way he wants. Either way, he's got to change. Could, could you give us a sense from your perspective of what that means? What kind of change do you expect in the Palestinian Authority? What kind of change do you think that should lead to in terms of the formation of a Palestinian state? Well, there are two, uh, actually two pressures coming on Arafat. One from the outside, basically from the United States and from Israel, and the other one is from uh, uh, inside, uh, from the Palestinian people, actually. For the past few years, uh, we uh, were asking for changes to be made in the uh, political uh, uh, scene, and hopefully now uh, Arafat has to move ahead either taking the uh, American-Israeli agenda or the Palestinian agenda. I hope that he will take the Palestinian agenda and move forward, actually. It sounds to me, on one hand, you, as a, a Palestinian, are living with the occupation and all that that entails, which we can talk about in a minute. But on the other hand, it sounds as if there is also a form of authoritarianism from your own side, 
when it comes to the Palestinian Authority that can also be equally, if not somewhat, very difficult to live with? Well, we, we, uh, we have to put these in uh, priorities. Actually, first of all, we are living under occupation for the past 35 years. And actually, the life that we are living is uh, uh, miserable uh, under occupation. So there is, uh, th- on this front, we want the occupation to end. But we think that to end the occupation, we have also to have a viable uh, system uh, internally. We don't equate this with that, but, and, and they are not at the same level uh, of importance. Getting rid of the occupation is the uh, priority, but uh, internally, we need also changes to make things better uh, for, for our lives internally. But the occupation is extremely harsh on us, and we want the occupation to end also. What is the occupation like day to day before this military incursion? I just talk a bit about your sense of living inside the occupi- occupied territories. Uh, occupation means that you lose control over your destiny. You cannot control your life. When the occupation, uh, the, the Israelis took over the West Bank and Gaza, I was 13 years of age. Now my youngest son is 13 years of age, and all of this time we've been living under a very cruel uh, system uh, that you cannot actually plan anything uh, in your daily life. We can't move from one town to another. I teach at State University, which is 10 kilometers away from Ramallah. Uh, I used to reach there in eight minutes. Now it takes me uh, more than an hour because there is a checkpoint and we have to take a a ride until we reach the checkpoint. We have to walk uh, to the other side and then we have to take another car. And sometimes soldiers are on the uh, checkpoint and uh, we cannot even move. So our life is being disrupted on a daily basis. I can't plan to teach my uh, students. Uh, just a couple of hours I came from a lecture uh, in which I have 20 students. Only 10 of them came because they couldn't reach because of uh, checkpoints. Our life is actually to go around checkpoints. This is our life. Now, you, and there are many Israelis who will say the same thing, but uh, for, for different reasons, think that, um, that the Oslo Accords were a mockery. And that I talked to an Israeli uh, member of Likud who thinks it was a mockery as well, but from a different perspective. And I, and I, and I want to get your perspective why you think it's a mockery and why you called it uh, an Israeli-Israeli agreement. We uh, went into Oslo on the hope that it will lead to uh, a Palestinian state after, it, uh, after we signed it, Mr. Arafat signed it, signed it with Mr. Rabin, uh, it entailed stages, dates, uh, that each side should uh, respect. On his plane back to Tel Aviv, Mr. Rabin said, and I'm quoting, no dates are sacred. So he didn't even wait for 24 hours to say that. It was only a few hours. The ink was not even try on, on that piece of paper, and he said that. And from there on, the Israelis didn't actually uh, uh, do what they had to do, what they signed on. And this is why from, the, from day one, we, uh, it was 
uh, signed with a bad faith, and the result was that we reached this stage where we are, you know, uh, this cycle of violence is, is taking lives on, on both sides. I know that you signed a petition that, uh, for the right of return of Palestinians, which is a huge issue inside the negotiations, will be a huge issue inside negotiations between the Palestinians and Israelis. Mm-hmm. And I want to give, give, you give our listeners a sense of what the right of return means. I mean, most of the, many of the refugees, Palestinian refugees, come from areas that are now in what is Israel proper, uh, Rama, Akra, Haifa, and many other places. So what? Yes. So from your, what does the right of return mean? How will that work from your perspective? Because it is going to be. A, I can see that as a huge sticking point in negotiations between the Israelis and Palestinians. Well, most Palestinians had to leave Palestine uh, in 1948 because of the war and because they were evicted by uh, Israel, by the the uh, Haganah, by by what came the Israeli uh, army afterwards. Uh, we have uh, researched this. Uh, Israelis uh, wrote about it, actually, and and they, they discovered and they pointed out to to that fact. So uh, you can't tell all of these people who who were the majority of the Palestinians, around 900,000 at the time, that they don't have uh, the right to return. This is an individual right. It's not a collective right, actually. Israel has actually to acknowledge. Uh, what happened to the Palestinians, acknowledge that they were evicted, and then we should talk about the right of re- return. I don't uh, expect that 4 million Palestinians are going to return to uh, what is now Israel, but at least this matter should be negotiated, and a number of those has the right to go back to uh, what is now Israel, and the others should come to what is going to become the state of Palestine. And, uh, and quite frankly, is there room in the state of Palestine? Is there room for all, uh, all the Jewish people in the state of Israel? Yes, if you, if you uh, want to have room, we will make room, of course. Uh, it depends upon uh, the type of the economy and, and uh, you know, many uh, different uh, variables. But yes, we can, we can in the West Bank. Actually, Mr. Sharon in the past few days, was saying that he wanted to bring one million uh, Jewish immigrants to the West Bank. Why should the West Bank take one million Jewish settlers coming from all uh, corners of the world and the Palestinians uh, and the West Bank uh, uh, is not uh, capable uh, to to, uh, host Palestinians? Actually, Ali Jabawi, I wish you'd describe for us for a minute what your sense both viscerally and intellectually is, and your own analysis of what could happen next, both in terms of peace between the Palestinians and Israelis and how, and, and how plausible possible that might be or not from your perspective, and also your sense of, of the possibility of a truly democratic Palestinian state and what that would mean. Uh, what will happen between us and uh, Israel? I think that uh, as long as Mr. Sharon and this uh, very right-wing uh, government is in Israel, I don't see any possibility for uh, reaching a settlement. Actually, the Likud, just a couple of days ago, uh, voted for uh, uh, not to establish, not to agree to the establishment of a Palestinian state. So I don't think that uh, we're going to have uh, a movement uh, 
situation is going to remain stagnant for a while, and I think that the cycle of violence is going to uh, erupt once again uh, after a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, if, if this is going to happen, you know, I mean the stagnation. Uh, I think that the, Ameri- uh, the American administration uh, can help in, in moving things forward, but I don't see, uh, see it uh, at the time very active doing so. Uh, for democratic Palestine, uh, I think that we have uh, uh, prospects. Uh, I think that we have elements of a, a democracy, uh, even under occupation. Uh, but I think that we uh, deserve more and we want more and we're going to get more uh, of it. But you see there is an entanglement between uh, having an occupation and incursion in your cities, a, a destruction uh, at the level that we saw the past month and uh, talking about democracy at the same time. Uh, sometimes uh, they don't fit with each other. Hopefully, we want the occupation to end, and, and in the process, this is how, you know, it shows how serious we are. Even we, uh, while we are under occupation, we are fighting internally our fight for a, a democratic life, democratic political system uh, inside uh, what we want to become Palestine. I, I just get a sense, and I certainly would not put words in your mouth, but I, that there's a certain sense of pessimism in your analysis about where this might go. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think that I'm a realist. I, uh, I wish uh, uh, to think of myself as a an optimist. Actually, when you live in this part of the world uh, and under this severe occupation, the only thing that you should be and you can be is to be an optimist. Uh-huh. Otherwise, you can't continue living. So, um, But I'm a realist. I look at the variables around and uh, I calculate them and I come up with the, with the end result. The end result is gloomy, actually, now. I don't see us moving uh, towards the, a settlement, a final settlement with Sharon Sharon now is talking about an interim prolonged uh, uh, settlement which would, uh, wouldn't be acceptable to the Palestinians because it won't give us the minimum acceptable conditions that we can live with. So uh, things are not looking good uh, at all. Uh, I, one last thought, and, I, and, I, I, it's, um, and your analysis and, and uh, observation of what just happened in Jenin, not between the Israelis uh, and the Palestinians in Jenin, but what just happened in Jenin between the residents of Jenin and Yasser Arafat not coming to the camp uh, and the significance of that. Well, uh, the story is not clear, but, uh, you know, they, they say that uh, because of security reasons, he couldn't uh, uh, go to the camp, inside the camp. He went at the outskirts of the camp, uh, and he greeted people over there. But it seems that, you know, I'll tell you, to be frank with you, people are uh, not very happy uh, nowadays uh, uh, about what, uh, what, you know, about the incursion uh, of the Israelis, about the level of the authority being prepared to face that challenge. And uh, uh, they have so many different questions to ask. Mr. Arafat and, and the authority, uh, the, the, the ministries, the security apparatuses, people, uh, they're probing, actually, and, and they want answers. And uh, uh, this is why the call for internal reform from, from the Palestinian people is extremely high these days. 
and and loud. And I think that Mr. Arafat is is uh, hearing these voices. Do you think, though, that that whether it's residents in Jenin who who um, uh, who may support some of the Islamic movements or people among the Palestinians who who are supporting in a very strong way a, a strong democratic um, secular Palestinian state? That that if you add all that up, that Yasser Arafat doesn't sound like he has a great deal of support among the people himself. Well, uh, you see, Mr. Arafat has the support uh, of of the people, but I think that uh, after what happened in the past uh, couple of months, uh, especially what happened in the Church of Nativity, uh, people are sore about that, and and uh, they didn't expect uh, that to happen. You know, for for thirteen Palestinians to be exiled from their home from their country, outside of the country. Uh, that agreement reached by Mr. Arafat and the, Israeli, and, and the uh, Israelis on this was uh, very difficult for, for uh, the Palestinians to swallow. So there is a bit of uh, anger uh, because of that. But I think that Mr. Arafat is still uh, have the support of the majority of the Palestinians. I think that if he moves uh, into reforming the system, he will gain more support. I think that uh, when when we hear of calls from the outside, from the Israelis in particular and the Americans, for uh, the removal of Mr. Arafat, although we have critical remarks uh, about his performance, we uh, stick by him because it's a challenge that we, uh, he faces from the outside and uh, we should support him because of it. You have been listening to the voice of Dr. Ali Jarbawi. During this hour, we've also heard from Dr. Nuha Khoury and Guy Grossman. These are some of the many unfiltered voices from on the ground in the Middle East that we have endeavored to share with you in our ongoing special interview series, Voices from the Holy Land. Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information, www.mecu.com. You're listening to a segment from the Mark Steiner Show archives. Send your thoughts about this show to talk at steinershow.org or tweet me at Mark Steiner. Hello, I'm Mark Steiner. Welcome to another installment in our ongoing special interview series, Voices of the Holy Land. In this hour, we'll be hearing first from Gila Seversky. Gila Seversky is an Israeli peace campaigner for more than 15 years. She lives in Jerusalem. She's a founding member of the Coalition of Women for a Just Peace a grouping of eight Israeli and Palestinian women's peace organizations. Remember, this is a pre-recorded program, so we can't take your calls. Women in Black is a vigil of women that began in Jerusalem 14 years ago, uh, of women who would wear black one hour every week and stand together at a prominent intersection in the city of Jerusalem, holding small signs that said, End the Occupation. 
It began in Jerusalem, and it spread to many cities around Israel, uh, and then in to many cities around the world. Today, there are over 150 vigils of women in black around the world. Uh, and what is common to all of us is standing for one hour dressed in black every week with a sign that says, End the Occupation. And this new coalition that you are part of and the women in black are part of. Right. Um, the Coalition of Women for a Just Peace was founded just a year and a half ago, and it brought it brings together nine different women's peace organizations in Israel. For example, Bat Shalom, which is a dialogue organization with Palestinian and Israeli women, or Checkpoint Watch, in which women monitor the checkpoints between Palestine and Israel for human rights abuses. The Coalition of Women for Just Peace brings all these organizations under one umbrella, and uh, work. we work together to have major actions like very large rallies where thousands of people come uh, to protest the occupation and call for a just peace between Israel and Palestine, uh, and some smaller actions of civil disobedience, which we have held to protest particular human rights violations. I'm curious if you find the significance of what happened earlier in the week with clear organization that does not <clears throat> represent your political views, but the could. Um, one of the two major parties in Israel that uh, Ariel Sharon is a member of, as is Benjamin Netanyahu, <clears throat> in their vote in their party meeting to say no to a Palestinian state. This, as you point out, was an internal decision made by the Likud political party. Uh, it was in direct opposition to the views of the head of the party, who is our prime minister, Ariel Sharon, the party members, the central committee of party members, decided um, and declared in a vote that they would not support a Palestinian state to exist um, side by side with Israel. Um, Sharon's professed view is that he wants more, um, more, ne- uh, more room to negotiate uh, in future deliberations with the Palestinians. Um, on the one hand, it sounds as if Sharon is more liberal and progressive than his party. On the other hand, I think what we're seeing is Sharon trying to cover his bases with the American president. He does not want to alienate Bush. Bush is openly in favor of a Palestinian state side by side with Israel. There is little fear, well, I say fear from his point of view, but there, from my point of view, there's little hope that we would have a Palestinian state side-by-side with Israel during Sharon's constituency uh, for uh, because Sharon would not be willing to remove any of the Israeli settlements from the Palestinian areas. I, I want to ask you a couple of things that I can call for both kind of a, perhaps a visual and intellectual response. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one has to do with your movement uh, and the peace movement in Israel and um, the Coalition of Women for a Just Peace, Women in Black, all the organizations that are part of that. Right. As kind of a minority voice in the land of Israel. And what you make of that, what you make of the fact that, that voices of peace are often minority voices uh, in many lands, but that the swing the Israeli population takes uh, between elections going right and left uh, between settling with the Palestinians on the one hand, but agreeing with the uh, with Sharon's military move on the other hand, and where you fit into that, and and what it says to you about your movement and the psyche of the Israeli people. 
Uh, well, the visceral response is that uh, things feel very bad for me and others in the peace movement during the Sharon term of office because um, of all the violence uh, that has accelerated and intensified. Um, I think, though, that one should look at a broader perspective, and I try to do that when I feel bad about the latest mm -hmm. outrage. The broader perspective is that over the last 15 or even 10 years, we have seen enormous change inside Israel that is actually moving us closer and closer to a Palestinian state and the peace with the Palestinians. That may sound shockingly off-center, off-base, to those of you who are right now engrossed in the immediate situation. Uh, what we see on the surface is rampaging nationalism on both sides, both Israel and Palestine, a tremendous aggressiveness, tremendous violence. But if you look under that surface, what you can see if you follow the surveys is increasing support for a separation between Israel and Palestine, increasing Israeli approval of the fact that Palestinians will have a state of their own side by side with Israel, and increasing support even for the concept that the city of Jerusalem, dear to both sides, mm -hmm. will ultimately be divided and serve as the capital of both states. And, and as a woman who has been so deeply involved both in the dialogue between Palestinians and Israelis and in the peace movement within Israel, um, your, your own reaction about whether it's the bombings inside of Israel by the suicide bombers from, from the Palestinian side, and you may, I'm sure, have known people who were hurt, injured, if not killed in those bombing attacks, mm -hmm. the young men and women you know who are serving in the army now, who mm -hmm. are in the West Bank and in Gaza, Mm -hmm. and, and how you respond to that. I mean, because in some senses, it's your children who mm -hmm. are in the army, and it's you and your neighbors who are being attacked. Right. Um, well, there's no question about the fact that there's fear. I feel fear as a mother of children, um, fearful uh, of, um, for myself. Um, I'm careful not to take buses or have my children take buses. I'm fearful about uh, food shopping when the markets are full, and I try to go when they're rather empty. Things like that. It's certainly um, fear has gripped our lives in many ways. Uh, on the other hand, my fear has increased ever since Sharon began his reinvasion of the Palestinian cities and refugee camps, because there's no doubt in my mind that while he has successfully undermined the terrorist infrastructure in those cities, he's actually created a new generation of people who hate Israel because they had nothing to do with that terrorism but suffered the punishment as civilians living near the terrorists. What then do you think should have been the response of the Israeli government to those attacks against Israeli people? Um, I have no doubt that there could have been one clear and successful response that would have stopped cold the terrorism. What would that be? Sitting down and negotiating peace. Sitting down and negotiating an end to the occupation. The terrorism is not happening in a vacuum. The, the uh, root causes of the terrorism are the anguish of the Palestinian people under a very oppressive occupation by Israel. Once that occupation is removed, 
the reasonable people in Palestine will not allow for the extremists in Palestine to carry out their terrorism because they will be deeply invested in a peace with Israel. Well, let me talk about what's going on on the Palestinian side again from your perspective because um, you have both idealistically and pragmatically worked in dialogue sessions with Palestinians and have worked hard for peace between the two people. Mm-hmm. Um, and much is being made now of the changes that must take place in the Palestinian Authority. They're coming from the outside, whether it's Ariel Sharon saying, I'm going to impose leadership on the Palestinians on some levels, or whether it's Palestinians themselves who want a more democratic nation and a more democratic Palestinian state coming out of a more democratic Palestinian Authority. Mm-hmm. And what is your sense of the vision of a Palestinian state and what that will be and who the leaders will be? There is uh, a very... Um able group of Palestinian uh, advisors to Arafat, who are themselves ministers in his government, um, very capable people. Uh, I could envision any one of them being head of a democratic state. Uh, I can uh, envision the state of uh, Palestine fulfilling um, all the basic criteria for what a democracy would be. Uh, and living side by side with Israel. What do you think the political reality of that is? Both of um, the Israeli government recognizing a Palestinian state, which would mean withdrawal of uh, settlements, most likely, and and of the reality of a strong democratic movement and democratic leadership taking hold among the Palestinians. Uh, The second will happen before the first. (laughs) We're going to see uh, reform of Palestinian society um, because it's, it happens increasingly, and it, it has happened increasingly over recent years. Um, there's a very, uh, the beginning of a strong civil society in Palestine. Um, there's uh, the demand for greater accountability in the governance structures of Palestine. That is happening all the time, increasing democratization of that society. On the other hand, we're not going to see peace under Ariel Sharon. He will not remove settlements under any circumstances. A week ago, he said the settlements to him are as dear to his heart as Tel Aviv is. That means nothing is budging under Sharon. My hope is that the person who succeeds Sharon in the premiership will be someone who is more open to uh, peace and more flexible on all those issues. And I'm just curious what you think would happen if... Israel agreed to ending the settlements on the West Bank and Gaza, and what the reaction would be among those who live in the settlements and those who support the settlements. There are about 200,000 people right now in the settlements, a little more. Uh, A good half of them are there not because ideologically they believe the land should be conquered and owned by Israel, but are there for economic reasons, because Israel gave them good incentives to go, income tax breaks and free grants for the land and top condition mortgages, etc. A hundred thousand, half of those people will happily move back into Israel if given economic incentives to return, some compensation for their homes, uh, jobs, a place to settle, a few income tax incentives, things like that. The other half will be more problematic because they do have a fundamentalist messianic view of their presence in the territories. Those people are going to have to be coaxed, enticed, and tempted to return to Israel 
not only based on economic incentives, but out of public pressure inside Israel that says, you must come back, peace is far more important than any piece of property. Of those people, many will return to Israel ultimately, and some will not. And then the question is, what you do with the, who knows, 20, 30,000, maybe fewer people who are the hardcore ideological settlers and say, under no circumstances will we ever leave this region. Uh, and then my answer about those hardcore settlers is, let them remain, let them become citizens of Palestine, and let them live under Palestinian sovereignty. But we, Israel, we are out of there. You've been listening to the voice of Gila Sabersky. When we return, we'll hear from Likud Party member Moshe Fegler. Remember, this is a pre-recorded program, so we can't take your calls. I'm Mark Steiner. Welcome back to our ongoing special interview series, Voices of the Holy Land. Peter Herman is the Middle East foreign correspondent for the Baltimore Sun. He joined us from Jerusalem to provide his commentary and analysis on the current situation. Remember, this is a pre-recorded program, so we can't take your calls. Where do we begin here? Let's begin with the news that's going on at the moment with Yasser Arafat um, and his announcement on Wednesday to the Palestinian uh, Legislative Council about these reforms that he was uh, saying as the Institute, Bush's response, and then, of course, Sharon's response. But I'm interested in your thoughts on on uh, on what people that you've talked to from the Palestinian Le- the Legislative Council have been saying uh, and uh, and how real this sounds. Sure. I mean, it's one of the, the great ironies here in that these voices were present before the start of the uprising and generally got silenced during during the fighting as everyone sort of concentrated their efforts on on the Israelis. With the latest military push by Israel, uh, it sort of brought these issues or these same issues back to the surface again. Corruption, uh, internal problems within the PA, poor government, poor management. Um, and it's, it's put them to the surface, which is sort of bolsters the some of the Israeli claims that they you know their military offensive was justified and that it is exposed and put the Palestinian Authority in disarray. Uh Arafat now has some com- very competing goals. Um you know Sharon doesn't want to negotiate with him until he is until Arafat's power has been diluted. Americans want to come and revamp the security apparatus, and internally, uh, people are calling for change. So he's got a sort of a juggling act to decide how he's going to do do this. Now, in, in some strange way, it seems that this war uh, that uh, Israel has launched with the Palestinians over over uh, Arafat and terrorism, in some strange way, it seems to have bolstered both the democratic secularist opposition. Uh, and maybe, who may be Islamic or Christian-based, and, and the jihadist Islamic opposition, seem to both have been in some strange way strengthened by this incursion by Israel into the Palestinian uh, towns. 
Exactly, and it's put Arafat into a, a tough position. Um, when he went out on his tour, he was widely criticized by some of the more militant groups, especially in the Janine camp, who were upset that Arafat didn't send his national police force to help defend them, and claiming that he left them to fend for themselves, and they put up a good fight, but they lost, and they wondered where Arafat was. On the other hand, it also has exposed a lot of internal problems within the Palestinian Authority. Um, so he's got, he's got a fight on his hand from internally and externally, um, from both America, from both Sharon and Sharon, and his various competing groups with, on the inside. What is your sense um, of the power of the opposition to Arafat? I mean, what I mean by that is, we can see in the paper that it looks as if the jihadist Islamic opposition, those who did most of the militant fighting against the Israelis in this in this uh, last few months, have gained in power. I'd like to know if you can analyze that for us for a second, as well as where you see the Hanan Ashwaris uh, and some of the young Fatah members uh, who are more secular in their view politically, and where their power is, and and where you see all that. I think the young members are trying to take advantage of disarray in government right now to try to further their further their cause and it may be it may not all be in terms of wanting a better Palestinian authority but it might be internal politics at play mm -hmm. uh, the more militant groups still remain small Islamic Jihad and Hamas still are a very small part of this equation they can do incredible damage what about their sway and popularity among the but people their sway and popularity has gone up mostly especially with Hamas is concerned it hasn't gone up generally because they're People want more militant action, although a lot do. There's more to do with Hamas is much more organized in terms of getting help to needy people. I remember going into the Gaza Strip a, a while ago and had, you know, when Palestinian and Arafat was closing some of the Hamas offices, and people there had never seen the Palestinian Authority come and try to help them, while it was the more militant groups, Islamic Jihad and Hamas in particular, that actually helped as many people or almost as many people as, as the Red Cross does in some of these neighborhoods. Um, they were getting everything from the roof over their heads to the food on their tables to schooling done by Hamas. Why are they able to do it and the Palestinian Authority not able to do it? That's the big question, and that's where a lot of the claims of corruption go. Um, and that's what their question was. I mean, this is the role of a, a government should play in helping its citizens. Where it falls, Hamas picks up on it, um, runs a lot of institutions, and and is able to gather support on the street because because they're the ones out there helping people. Now, what about the forces that were around Barghouti, who's been captured by the Israelis? And he was, in some senses, whether the Israelis claim he's a terrorist, other people don't, that's a debate people can have at the moment. But the question is, is he's in Israeli custody, but he represented in some ways a kind of uh, a, a secular, internal, younger opposition and power inside of uh, the Palestinian Authority. What about that world? He was the leader of that young group that's now emerging as sort of the challenge to Arafat's, you know, that wants to change. It's some, and this is just speculation on a lot of people's part, that mm -hmm. Israel is sort of holding him as a future bargaining chip. That eventually, that when it, and Israel might get, wants to get the state that it wants out of the Palestinian Authority, that Barghouti might be its leader. And what about when you read on Hanan Ashwari's webpage and other places where they talk about really pushing the PLC, really pushing the Palestinian Legislative Council, pushing for democratic reforms for elections despite the occupation? Where, where, where in your analysis is all of that at the moment? 
Well, that's going to be interesting to see how serious the move is. I mean, Arafat called for such elections in reform a year ago, and it never materialized. So we'll see if he's just, you know, if he really means it or he's trying to initiate some reforms on paper to placate the various groups. Um, it's very interesting now because on both sides of the equation, both Israel and the Palestinians mm-hmm. are in their own political quandaries, um, now that they've, for at least for a few days now, stopped fighting each other. Um, right now, fighting among each other. Well, that often is the case, isn't it? I mean, and I and I let's let's move to the Israeli side for a minute. Uh, I, your sense again from the polls you've been reading and the articles you've been reading, people you've been talking to, is how much support do you think there is in the Israeli population for the new Netanyahu-led Likud opposition to a Palestinian state? Well, there was an interesting poll published today in the newspaper, which found that that even though what Netanyahu has to say, his tough response, his, his never wanting a Palestinian state and wanting to exile Arafat resonates among a large group of people, still the poll found that 64% don't trust him. Don't trust him. 72% believe in Sharon. And while it was an embarrassing setback for, um, for Sharon to lose the vote within his own party um, in terms of a Palestinian state, doesn't seem to be something that the entire nation has, uh, is, is gripping right now. And it seems that they still back uh, Sharon in the way he's handling things. What about opposition to Sharon from the other side, from the labor side? And what is they that? are clinging to the government because they still, they, they especially right now, see that there is a political option. And they put, labor put forward a, its own peace plan the other day, which essentially calls for uh, East Jerusalem to be in the hands of the Palestinians and the um, old city and the Temple Mount to be uh, internationalized. So they're, they're, everyone's sort of using this window now to throw in their, their plans, everyone from the Americans to the various parties to the Palestinians to everyone else. And maybe we can get, maybe we'll see how far this process goes before the next, uh, before the next terror attack. And... And when you say that, what do you think would be the result of that, if that happened? It appears that the Gaza Strip will be the next place hit. The next substantial terror attack will mean an invasion into the Gaza Strip, which was put off last week um, after one such attack, uh, mainly for political reasons and from pressure from the United States. One of our guests from the Israeli side said the settlers would never leave. One of our other Israeli guests today said that... um, said that the settlements, that 100,000 of the settlers would leave easily, the, the rest would probably also go, and there'd be about ten or 20,000 that would refuse to leave. Uh, it, what's, your, what's your sense of that? I think that's a much more accurate assessment. Um, depends. I mean, there are settlements in Hebron where I don't think they're going to leave at all. There are other ones where I think people realize that they're there for you know, a lot for political reasons, and uh, we'll... Will vacate. Not everyone. Not every settler is there for purely religious or ideological reasons. A lot are there because it represents um, you know, relatively cheap housing, and uh, you know, in a, in a more rural lifestyle than what what the cities offer. You've been listening to the voice of Baltimore Sun Middle East correspondent Peter Herman. This is some of the many unfiltered voices from on the ground in the Middle East that we have endeavored to share with you in our ongoing special interview series, Voices of the Holy Land.